Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 3 this morning. Let's take our scriptures there. If you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, please raise your hand and our ushers will be very glad to provide you with one. I just saw Mr. Ward walk in. Great to see you, Mr. Ward. First Sunday back after open heart surgery, you look well. Glad that you're here. As you're turning to Romans chapter 3, want to let you folks know that there will be child care, infants through sixth grade available for the marriage conference. Um, we'll have appropriate folks uh, available to care for you. And, uh, and well, it's not you, but your children. And uh, <laughs> we'll also care for you. Um, but uh, we have uh, an outside group coming in to provide dessert for us for that night. And uh, it's quite a spread of coffees and desserts. We'll have tremendous preaching and then a lot of hilarious fun doing some couples games together. And uh, we're looking forward to that. Jack Faleski is with us here today. This is Michelle's husband. This is Nick Master Petro's brother-in-law. And we've been praying for them in recent uh, home going and mourning the loss of Michelle. So Jack, I just wanted to say publicly, we love you and we're glad you're here today. And uh, Lord gave you the strength to get here and trust you leave encouraged today. Uh, a, Jack's a good friend of mine and it's just a blessing to have his company uh, today. We were in um, a recent, recently we were in a really good friends of ours in their home for an overnight stay. We were having a discussion in their living room um, about why, why believers may not be as burdened as they need to be for uh, lost souls, those who need the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And in the midst of all that discussion, um, Laura made an interesting statement. You know, it's one we've all heard before, but I hadn't heard for some time. And about understanding the condition of man. She said, you know, we've been flooded over the last 20 years with a lot of sermons touching on the topic of why do bad things happen to good people? And it's almost like she said Christians have been put back on their heels in this world and they're not even close to considering how in the world they're gonna be spiritually reproductive in the community because they're always licking their wounds, wondering why they're afflicted all the time. And then she said this, very interesting. She said, we're in the least afflicted culture in modern history. But yet we're always examining of why bad things happen to good people. And she said this, why don't we preach more on this question? Why do good things happen to bad people? Yeah. But that question goes right along the outline of the book of Romans. After Paul's introduction, we have one question posed to us. Is man lost in sin? And our conclusion from chapter 1 and verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20 is absolutely what? Yes. And we broke down lost men into three categories. Do you remember what those were? The heathen, the irreligious, the moralist, hang on with me here, the moralist and the religious person, the irreligious, the moralist, and the religious person. All those 
who are without Jesus Christ are lost and are dead in their trespasses and sins. But if you study the whole of scripture, this is what you'll find out. There's not one of those groups whose toes are touching the flames of hell more than the other. They're all equally lost. And if you're gonna be honest with the whole of scripture from our Savior's teaching in the Gospels forward, it's not the heathen, the irreligious, the axe murderers of the world, if you will, the serial killers, the dregs of humanity, the common criminal. It's not those in scripture that are actually explained to be the most wicked of society. Jesus says the darkest souls in society, the most wicked in society, are the moralist and the religious person because they themselves in their pride actually believe that through their good works and through their understanding of God without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they can earn their way to heaven. And Jesus actually said the day of judgment, hell itself, will be worse in degree, much worse for the moralist and the religious person than it will be for the irreligious heathen. This is not a popular subject in our culture. It's not a popular subject in our culture. Why do good things happen to bad people? Who are the bad people? All of us, apart from Jesus Christ, all of you moral religious people apart from Jesus Christ, we're the worst of the worst. Why could Paul say in Philippians chapter three, look at my religious pedigree, and yet I can, he can say in 1 Timothy chapter one, I am the chief of sinners. Something else that's not popular in our culture, I'm not here to seek to be intentionally unpopular this morning, I'm just gonna tell you this. There is nobody that can be saved in our world unless they consider themselves the chief of sinners. Salvation doesn't come in degrees. And if you've truly been born again, this is what you recollect, recollect at your, your born again experience. When you were on your knees begging for God's mercy, when he, by way of the Holy Spirit, absolutely persuaded your heart that you are a lost, hell-bound, under judgment, under the wrath of God sinner, the moment you begged God for forgiveness and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I've got a really good notion that none of you were thinking, boy, there's someone that's more sinful than I that really needs Jesus more than I do, but I'm gonna go ahead and turn from my sin and place my faith in Jesus anyway. I mean, if you were truly born again, in that moment, the Spirit of God was doing nothing but singularly pointing you out as the worst sinner of all time. And we were. We were. I went through my personal pedigree at the conclusion of a sermon a couple weeks ago. Do you remember that? No? You want me to go through it again? No. Right? I was raised on a spiritual spoon, silver spoon. Some of you that know literature know that, the use of that metaphor. 
if anyone would stand in their own mind righteous before God in our culture, it would be a kid that was reared the way I was. What indictment could you lay upon me? But I remember when I was five years old, the guttural, can I say this, horrific conviction of sin that the Spirit of God placed upon me. As if I was the chiefest of sinners, and I was. Why do good things happen to the irreligious, the moralist, and the religious? Why do good things happen to bad people? What did we find out? God does good to the heathen. He gives them creation. Remember chapter one? To the moralist, he gives them the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience. And to the religious, he not only adds the observation of creation, and the understanding of the importance of the human conscience, God made in the image of man, but he's also given to them his word, explicating fully the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and every man's desperate need for him. And this is why, if you understand creation, the conscience to the word, and you understand the progression of the text within the context, this is why the greatest onus of responsibility is upon the religious one and the moralist. To whom much is given, much is what? Much is required. Every man will be without excuse. Every man will be without excuse in the day of judgment. So I ask you again, do you know a lot about Jesus Christ? Or was there a time in your life where you were so under conviction that you were the worst sinner of all time, you ran from your sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You repented and you trusted and made Christ the Lord of your life to the point where he absolutely put your feet in another direction. No longer living in worldliness, but since then pursuing Christ-likeness. You see, being born again is not so much getting out of hell for free. It's the demonstration of the person of the Holy Spirit and his power when you understand Jesus Christ and you place your faith in him to the point where the demonstration of that power is seen in the way you live. Changes the course of your life, doesn't it? Changes the course of our lives for good. For good, what joy, <laughs> right? What joy. So as we continue on in the book of Romans this morning, we head to our second major section of this book. The first, by way of introduction, chapter one, verses one to 17. We have the theme of the book given in verses 16 and 17, from chapter one and verse 18 to chapter three and verse 20. We have the first major section of the book. And the question is simply asked, is the world lost? And we come to the conclusion that yes, the world is lost. In section two, we come to the righteousness of God revealed. The first section, the wrath of God revealed, is the world lost, yes. The second section, according to Alva J. McLean's outline of this book, the righteousness of God revealed, how does God save sinners? The question is asked 
And the answer is in Jesus Christ. The breakdown of the section that we're about to begin to study, the revealed righteousness of God is as follows. I'm going to give you a broad breakdown of this next whole section, which covers a pretty large portion of scripture. So we're gonna be looking at over the next few months, probably, chapter three, verse 21, through chapter eight and verse 39. So let me give you a broad outline of this rather large portion of scripture and then we're going to give you the outline that we'll discuss both today and next week in relationship to the first portion of this broader section. The righteousness of God revealed. It's revealed first of all in justification the declared righteousness that we all have in Jesus Christ. And that covers chapter three, verse 21, through chapter five and verse 21. Justification, 321 to 521. Next, sanctification. That's how we're made holy in Christ. Justification is how we're made righteous in Christ. Sanctification is how we're made holy in Christ, and that's chapter six and seven. Chapter six and seven. And then preservation. That's chapter eight. Justification, sanctification, preservation. How we are kept securely in Christ. Declared righteous in Christ, made holy in Christ, and kept securely in Christ. Those are the broader sections. For our purposes today, let's consider the first portion under our book's second major heading. Here the Lord describes for us how God justifies sinners. This is what McLean calls the method of making sinners right with God. What is God's method of making sinners right with his person? Let's go back a week and consider some wording in Paul's conclusion about the nature of man. Right? And then we'll se- that'll segue us uh, nicely into verse 21 here. If we go back here to the end of our last section here, beginning in verse nine of chapter three. I wanna highlight some words for you that we read last week, okay? It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now I want you to underline the word all or none. The word all or none as we read these verses. We are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. For their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every man may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God 
because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, I'm not big on numerology in the Bible. I believe within certain contexts, uh, a proper interpretation of the use of numbers is appropriate, and I believe this is one of them. The word none and the word all, those two words add up to be used seven times in this final section describing the nature of man. I believe to show us that by nature, man is completely, and if I can use this, perfectly fallen. Every thread of their being, there's not one thread of an unsaved person's being that is somewhat saved. Man is completely fallen. Now, we head into the good news. We head into the good news. By the time you get to verse 21 to verses 31, our immediate context for the next two weeks, we're going to see the apostle Paul utilize three different words multiple times. It's actually a flood of good news through the use of three words. And those three words are simply these. Righteousness, forms of the word justify, and the word faith. The word faith. To counteract or to show the opposite of the nature of man and completely fallen, He's going to give us here numerous in just 11 verses, uh, multiple times these words are used to, to, to show us that this is a complete and opposite reality for man when they come to know the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So let's read these verses. Verse 21, and on your own, if you believe in marking in your Bible, highlight the word righteousness, forms of the word justify or just, and the word faith. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And by the way, that's the same root word as faith, so you can underline that. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, verse 23 here is just a a parenthetical expression that we'll discuss this morning uh, it may have seemed out of place for you, for those of you that have read this passage for years, but we'll show this morning how it fits within the context. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who, is, who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain The man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith 
and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We establish the law. Now, that's a lot of usages of three different words, isn't it? In just 11 verses. And we're going to give a substructure now to this first section that I hope will be helpful uh, for you in understanding this larger section of the book of Romans, which tells us how man is justified in Christ. This is God's method. So let's break down these verses. I'll give you an outline. It'll have four points. We're only gonna study two this morning, and that's if we have time. This is gonna be one of those sections we're gonna slow down a little bit, and I may not finish the outline today, uh, but we'll all leave hugging regardless. All right? First of all, our right standing with God is described. Our right standing with God is described. This is found in verses 21 and 22. Our right standing with God is described. And that right standing, though two verses, is comprehensively described here. And we're going to take our time walking through the blessing of that understanding. In verses 22c, the third part of verse 22, and verse 23, we're going to see that a right standing with God is required. Our right standing is going to be described, and we will see that it is required. Third, in verse 24, we're going to see our right standing with God presented. How is it presented? In verse 24. In verse 25 and 26, we're going to see our right standing with God announced. Announced. And then what we're going to see is verses 27 to 31, we're going to handle as somewhat of a conclusion of this immediate section. And this conclusion is going to demonstrate for us three questions that the Apostle Paul asks and he gives us an answer to each question and we'll see that at the end of next week's sermon. And we read those three questions this morning, didn't we? Verse 27, where then is boasting? Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? And verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Three questions that he's going to bring in his closing arguments of this particular subsection of God's declaration of righteousness revealed and his particular method. I want to do something here real quickly again to just show you a grammatical blessing uh, of the book of Romans. Go back with me to uh, Romans chapter 1 and let's look at the theme of the book of Romans before we move on this morning. Romans chapter 1, and let's look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. The grammar of that word just simply means that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is daily, continually being revealed. In other words, there's opportunity today for every lost man, an opportunity for every lost man tomorrow, and any day forward from then to consider 
the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. But man without the Lord Jesus Christ also lives under another continuing reality found in verse 18 of chapter one. For the wrath of God is what? Is revealed from heaven. And it's revealed against all ungodliness and unright the heathen, the moralist, and the religionist. Okay. Similar grammar. The unsaved person lives under the opportunity or the condemnation of one or the other. And so it's like the Holy Spirit of God is making an appeal here to someone who has yet to trust Christ as their savior. God's, God's opportunity for you to know his righteousness is always available. It's always an invitation. That's his mercy, isn't it? Praise God for his mercy that he extended that mercy as long as you had life and breath. What a great opportunity for all those who are yet to receive Christ to know it and to see it and experience it. But while they wait, there's nothing dormant about the wrath of God either. It's an active presentation of itself. And it's a reminder to man. It's not a threat. It's not a threat. It's a sober reminder to man that when they depart this world without surrendering their heart to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to govern it, it's a reminder to them that they had years to see and to trust. God is patient, isn't he? Second, Peter chapter three and verse nine, I believe is a great little cross-reference to put there Next to Romans 1, 16 through 18. God is not slow concerning his promise, right? But he is patient towards all men, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. There's the revelation of God's righteousness and there's the revelation of God's wrath summarized by the apostle Peter in one verse. And God is mocker through me. He's patient with all men. Now, some of you in this room have heard the gospel many, many times, and I know it's just a handful of you. And some of you in this room that have heard the gospel many times have no problem giving intellectual assent to who Jesus Christ is and why he came. You have no problem at all even believing that the Bible is completely the word of God, that God is your creator, and that Jesus is the eternal son of God. You have no problem at all embracing the reality that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended, and is coming back for his own. All that data, though, all that data doesn't save you. All that understanding leaves you shy of the righteousness of God, and you still remain under his wrath. until you're willing to take that data and allow that data to change the way you live. The only way you change the way you live is if you have another life in you calling the shots. You must turn from your sin and place your faith under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So God's method the good news. Romans chapter three and verse 21, let's consider this morning our first of four points here. Our right standing is described. 
There's several phrases here that we need to understand, and we're going to break these phrases down for you. But now, it's pretty simple in English grammar. It's certainly clear in Greek grammar that Paul has a complete shift in thought here. Now that that's settled and done with in a comprehensive fashion, now let's talk about something else that's equally comprehensive but necessary for understanding. And for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, remember why Paul is writing this letter. Recollection, remediation, preparation. These folks know this data already. They're born again. It needs to be remediated for the coming preparation of both planting churches in the far western world at that time, Paul speaks of Spain later on in Rome, and to prepare their hearts for persecution. So never forget, when he says, but now, this is a rehearsal. This is a rehearsal. He's writing this to a group of people that he has nothing negative to say about them in, every, in any chapter of this letter. These are good people. These are passionate people. These are disciple-making people. These are word-saturated people. These are church-planting people. These are people just like you. But he still deals in a comprehensive fashion by introducing us to this godly method of making us right with himself. In verse 21, but now, first of all, the first aspect of our right standing with God described is in that next phrase. It is apart from the law. It is apart from the law. Do you remember Hebrews 4 and verse 15? One commentary cites this text in cross-referencing the Greek word apart from is used exactly the same way in Hebrews 4.15 where it says, Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are yet, what? Without sin. None of us would ever, ever associate Jesus Christ with one sin, let alone a sinful lifestyle, would we? He was, he was the perfect law keeper, the pure son of God, Jesus Christ. The same grammar is used here, right? But now, apart from the law, our salvation is completely distinct and wholly other. It has nothing to do with your ability to do good works. It's completely distinct. No association on this earth or in eternity whatsoever. No man will ever be able to say, my but now on judgment day was my good works or my adherence to some man-made law. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. I just want to stop just for a moment just to encourage some by way of possible conviction. In the stripe of Christianity in which I was reared, my biggest fear is that there are many people who are over 60 years old that believe someday they can stand before God and say, I kept the laws of our church for 50 years, so I must be saved. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's my biggest fear. Okay. Law keepers. Remember what we studied last week. It's not merely the Mosaic law that's being addressed here. It's any religious law of man, any practical law of man, any practical standard or conviction that man might impose upon himself to follow 
There is no law known to man that will be able to be referenced in the day of judgment that would be acceptable in the sight of your creator or your redeemer. None. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in his reminder to this troubled church, I came to you preaching nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our right standing with God is completely apart from the law. It's completely apart from the law. We always remind folks that there are only two kinds of people in the world, saved and unsaved. All the unsaved can be reasonably grouped into, def into defining their own way to heaven through various laws and adherence to them. And those who are saved, who have submitted their hearts and minds to one perfect law keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there remains today just two kinds of people in the world. Those who are providing for their own eternity or life after last breath on their own and those who have submitted to God's exclusive provision in Jesus Christ. So, our right standing with God described is first of all apart from the law and it's further described secondly as being righteousness that's sourced in God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God. This next phrase, the righteousness of God. Now, some of you that know Greek grammar, you know that there uh, is not a contention or an argumentation about what type of genitive this is. Right? But all I will tell you is, is that whether you believe that this is uh, Righteousness found in God or God that is righteousness, I believe both can be correct. Because God is infinite perfection. Amen? Yeah. He's infinite perfection. First John 1 says God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. God is infinite perfection. God is righteousness. This perfection has its source in our infinite creator. Paul clearly demonstrates here that he has picked up where he left off from the theme of the letter of the book of Romans that we discussed moments ago in verses 16 and 17 of chapter one. The righteousness of God is revealed and now this is the methodology of how it is. Thirdly, Righteousness is described as being manifested. Manifested. But now apart from the law one, the righteousness of God two has been manifested. How many of you were here under our previous pastor's ministry? All right. Maybe 40, 50% of you. Maybe more. Right. Do you remember how much he loved to talk about the Greek language in his sermons? He loved to talk about that a lot. I like to talk about it a lot too. I just use it in different ways, right? But I'm gonna use it in the way he used to use it, just for this morning, just for fun. Because this was my dad's favorite Greek tense. 
right? This is the perfect tense. And, and he used to say, what this means is that there's something that happened in history that was very significant. With the result, its influence has continued throughout its existence, right? and it's still just as influential today with emphasis on today. This is the perfect tense. The righteousness of God was manifested, and this is through the public display of the person, the perfect person, the perfect law keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one says that Jesus Christ is the express image of the glory of God. Jesus Christ said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and my Father are one. It's been manifested. Titus chapter two and verse 11, it says the grace of God has what? Appeared to all men, teaching them when they understand that grace that their lifestyle is gonna be changed. Teaching them to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts in this present age. This manifestation was miraculous in the sense that that which was infinite became finite in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was miraculous because it offers you a grace that is powerful enough to transform the way you live for the rest of your life and provide for you life more abundantly and life eternally. So for the believer that is passively or actively tempted to look outside or in addition to the bloody atonement of Christ for the salvation, remember this verb construction. There has never been and there can never be anything or anyone that man can do to add to the perfect demonstration or display of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Simple as that. Next, it's further described as being attested by both the law and the prophets. Attested by both the law and the prophets. What does the text say here? But now, apart from the law first, sourced in God is our righteousness. Second, it's been manifested with emphasis on today. It's just as influential today as, it was, as he was when he was first displayed for us. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Being witnessed by the law. Consider the activity of the Old Testament saint each time a sacrifice had to be offered as a temporary atonement for sin. Uh, consider Ben Richard. He's always going to get picked on because he's on the front row. And I always see him first. All right? So consider Ben in Old Testament times. He would be bringing a spotless lamb on behalf of the sins of his family. And he would be bringing it right, for slaughter. Right? And they would bring that spotless lamb they would slit its throat, shed its blood on the altar, and Ben, as representative of his family, would place his hand on the head of that lamb. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. By Ben doing that in that Old Testament context, what is he saying? I must have an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not my own. Ben could have slit his own wrist and dabbled a little spattering of blood. Ben could have taken his own blood and put it on the doorposts of his home. But no, it had to be, 
had to be done via a spotless lamb, picturing, demonstrating that Ben was saying, I cannot be forgiven, I cannot be made right with God apart from somebody else's righteousness. Somebody else's blood had to be shed, somebody else has to declare me righteous. So Paul is saying here, don't forget, even in the Old Testament, the law was a witness to your need for an alien righteousness. The sad reality we know from Old Testament Israel is that the majority of them, while they practiced that, were merely religious people. Think about that. They would even go to church, if you will, shed the blood of the spotless lamb, follow all the legal requirements, place their hand demonstratively upon that lamb's head and still not be born again because they were just merely following the law to the letter, not what the law was to direct them to or who the law was to direct them to. It was an admission that I need someone else's righteousness. Think about the prophets. I think the most popular prophet in the Old Testament that would give witness to our need for somebody else's righteousness would be the prophet Isaiah. (laughs) I mean, a massive portion of that very long book That's why we call it a major prophet, right? It's a big book. A major portion of that book tells us of a coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse six, what does it say? All we like sheep have what? Have gone astray. We've turned everyone to their own way and the Lord has laid upon him, prophetically speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of all of us. It's testified, it's attested to, if you will, in the law and the prophets. How do we know this? Go over to Romans chapter four real quickly. We'll jump ahead as we finish this morning. Romans chapter four and verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now folks, this is pre-Mosaic law. This is before Abraham could lay a hand on a lamb's head. He believed in that which was spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even from Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelum forward, Abraham believed that there was an alien righteousness required for his salvation. Let's go on down farther to someone else who had more information than Abraham. In the same chapter, Romans chapter four and verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from what? Apart from works. One pre-Mosaic, someone living in the Mosaic system, both believing that they're only declared righteous apart from works through an alien righteousness. It's testified by both the law and the prophets. Next, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, It's described in its scope in verse 22. 
be. And we'll look at those next week. I told you we're gonna go slow. I didn't even get through the first point. But I'm not gonna lose sleep over it. All right? What I'll lose sleep over is you not getting out on time. All right? I won't lose sleep because that's enough. That was a lot for today. And now think about that. But now, but now, how is the righteousness of God always revealed? As to its method, it's described in these various ways. And there's a lot of ways in which this is described, telling us that the righteousness of God is quite infinitely sufficient to save your soul. To save your soul. Right? Let's pray together. Father,